2: Well, thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the AccuWeather podcast. And this week, Andy, we are talking to forensic meteorologist Steve Wistar about Hurricane Katrina.
1: Yeah, Hurricane Katrina. Hard to believe that's made landfall 13 years ago. And we're going to talk to Steve Wistar about what AccuWeather provided with forensic investigations to help people get their money as a result of damages from Hurricane Katrina.
2: Right, and we're also uh, going from uh, flood to fire. We're talking to meteorologist Jeff Cornish, who uh, is a firefighter, and he's also one of the uh, broadcast meteorologists on the network here. He's going to be giving us an update on the wildfires out west, so stay
1: tuned. From our global headquarters in State College, Pennsylvania, it's the AccuWeather Podcast. Here's your host, Regina Miller.
2: Well, I'm joined in the studio now by meteorologist, uh, forensic meteorologist Steve Wistar, and we are talking today about Hurricane Katrina and how forensics helped to uh, solve some uh, different cases that you had to deal with after that. So thanks for joining me today Steve.
3: It's great to be here.
2: So tell me a little bit about Hurricane Katrina. It's hard to believe it was 13 years ago but AccuWeather's involvement in the forensics end of this.
3: Katrina made landfall on August 29th 2005 and for two months uh, thereafter we heard nothing and that was not surprising to us because historically before that our forensic department never did all that much work with tropical systems. Once in a while But in most of those uh, prior storms, there wasn't that much question about what happened. And forensically, we tend to get involved in cases where there are two sides and there are questions about the details. So we uh, didn't hear anything. But then a very assertive business owner down on the Mississippi coast who actually raised organic tilapia for a living, um, his business, I think, was okay, But his home was right near the waterfront, and he was starting to have some difficult conversations with his insurance company, and it seemed like they weren't going to help him very much. And so... He was the first one to contact us, and he was very well connected, part of the Rotary Club in Biloxi, Mississippi, and other connections. And so he actually inspired us to go down. Uh, I personally went down to visit the coast uh, about three months after the storm and started meeting, uh, of course, him and then some other people who also had, uh, had horrible property losses in the storm and were looking to get some help because... The insurance companies were basically saying it was flood and thus they owe nothing. Just a uh, backtrack there a little bit. Um, a property owner on the coast will have their property insurance with their regular insurance carrier um, and then separate flood insurance if they choose to buy it from the government. Right. Now, Katrina brought the largest storm surge in U.S. history, 28 feet high, almost three stories of water in parts of the Mississippi coast. So it was very easy for the insurance companies to say, it's all a flood and we owe you nothing. And that made a whole lot of people upset uh, on the coast from Alabama across Mississippi and into the eastern part of Louisiana. So uh, this particular uh, business owner was one of the first to to realize that things weren't going well in his discussions with his insurance company. And thus he um, decided to give us a call and um, he tracked us down and he brought us down there because basically no one had ever heard of a forensic meteorologist. No one knew that maybe they could get some help with the details of what happened at their particular property. And essentially, if you think back to what happened uh, with Katrina being so scary as it came on shore, everyone evacuated away from the coast, which was the smart thing to do, right. went inland, and they come back to their property after the storm uh, down there on the coast. No one has basements. They just have concrete slabs. So what they come back to this concrete slab and nothing else. Wow. Their, their building is gone, their house, their casino, their gas station. Whatever their property was, gone, with no trace of any of their their furniture. It's wow. all gone, and people come back, and basically they don't they don't know exactly the, how it all happened. They just know that uh, the storm surge came in and washed it all away.
2: So how does it break down in the storm, and then the damage and how it's covered? Like so, would storm surge that would be. Under your federal government? Yes. Um, flood insurance?
3: Yes. the storm surge uh, damage is, is only flood. And okay. uh, everyone's property insurance, it excludes flood in right. pretty much all cases. So right. you have to have separate insurance. The property insurance will cover wind damage. It will cover rain blowing in after wind damage. Say if a window breaks, your roof comes off, uh, and then the rain comes in, the water damage due to the rainfall that was initially caused by the wind, that is covered. But what happened was the insurance companies basically said, we have the greatest storm surge in U.S. history, so we don't have to cover anything. And like I said earlier, that got a lot of people upset.
2: Yeah, because it pretty much, no matter what happened, whether it was wind or maybe some of the tornadoes that were spin-ups maybe uh, ahead of Katrina, like everything would just be... Eliminated from coverage because then probably just had a big area that was just blanket where they were saying, "Oh, it's all flood."
3: Right, and whatever happened, the damage, whatever particular damage occurred to someone's particular property, then the storm surge came along next and washed it all away. So the evidence is gone. Right. Um, So what we were able to do, uh, and and when we first got involved, you know, we didn't know where the where the data would take us. But what I learned in getting involved with the storm, and I. Uh, it all snowballed. I met many, many people, and we ended up doing 250 separate studies. Wow. All on the coast. The majority in Mississippi, quite a few in the eastern suburbs of New Orleans and I think one in Alabama. But uh, the storm came on shore in Mississippi and that's where the worst damage was. So we did all those cases. Every single one was wind versus water. And what we did, and it got very scientifically complicated, we reconstructed the storm. And what we learned is in almost all locations, the wind came first. And we had strong evidence of that. We also did talk to a few uh, crazy folks who did not evacuate and live through the storm and managed to tell about so it. So
2: you actually have like witnesses uh, we, to the situation.
3: Yes, because we started I started meeting people down there, uh, they turn they introduced me to other people, they knew some somebody who had not evacuated I was able to talk to dozens of people who you know uh, hunkered down and stayed during the storm and describe for me the progression of how it happened and what happened in what order but uh, so that was helpful mm-hmm. and that confirmed the science and we used a very complicated computer model to reconstruct the storm surge uh, and we also had all the timing of the storm of the winds and uh, the wind direction and it's it's a long scientific story of how we put all the pieces together basically what All of the information showed is that on the morning of August 29, 2005, the winds began to reach hurricane force uh, shortly after midnight, by 6 or 7 a.m., there were wind gusts over 100 miles an hour. Near the center of the storm, 125 miles an hour, oh, which yeah. would cause tremendous damage. Trees down, falling into houses, roofs off, uh, things like that. And that all ha- and there was even uh, there was an outer eye wall that the storm was uh, in the process of going through an eye replacement cycle, which is what hurricanes do sometimes. That outer eye wall came on shore 6 to 7 a.m. It had some scattered tornadoes in it right. that were never officially put into the official government weather records because with all the chaos, uh, no one actually observed the tornado tracks. But I went down after the storm and saw them, saw the evidence of those tracks, and we were able to match that up with Doppler radar, the timing of when uh, a cell came by that could have caused a tornado. And again, those cells came through uh, between 6 and 7 Mm a.m. And the model clearly showed the storm surge arrived along the coast around 9 a.m. that morning. So there was hellacious winds, tremendous damage that would have occurred along the entire coast before the water ever got there. So it was wind before water. And so the wind was covered by their insurance company. I'm practically getting chills telling you about this because we were able to show to people, and thus they told their friends, and eventually lawyers got involved and right. told their lawyer <laughs> friends, and eventually judges got involved and issued rulings uh, about this. Uh, maybe insurance companies tried to claim that they didn't know anything. The judges said if there's proof that the wind came first and wind damage is covered by the insurance policy, then the insurance companies are obligated to pay.
2: Right. So if it wouldn't have been for your investigation uh, into that, there's a lot of people who really never would have been made anywhere close to whole.
3: That's right. And and it was a very moving uh, part of my career for me personally in that I felt like I was truly helping a lot of people. I mean, people lost their whole entire life savings in their home on the beach. That was their equity. That was their retirement. And it was all gone. And people were desperate. And it right. was amazing because I did go down and visit a lot of people down there. I took three trips after the storm, but I spent a whole lot of time uh, back at our home office here in Pennsylvania fielding phone calls from all kinds of people, and I felt like a therapist. I bet you
2: did because they were calling you, and they're probably crying over their situation or just devastated. You're their greatest hope at that time.
3: Yes, And, and before the storm, no one had ever heard that a forensic meteorologist existed or could do such a thing. And so when I would go down there on my trips, I would go to someone's property site. I would meet them in person. I would look at what was left, which was either little or nothing. Right. I'll Some of their
2: from. homes are on stilts, too. Like, or, uh, or well, where theirs mostly just slabs. Um
3: The ones on stilts would be closest to the coast. But with mm-hmm. with 28 feet of water, the stilts weren't that wow. high. It took those mm-hmm. homes away, too. Right. If you go down to this day... Thirteen years later, and you drive along uh, Route 90, which is right on the beach in Mississippi. You will see that those towns, there's there's a few scattered buildings on that road, like a uh, you know the waffle houses and all that that mm-hmm. they rebuild quickly. But the most of the town begins three or four blocks inland. Right. So you drive on the coast road, and there's all these empty lots, and it's. Risky to build back. It's difficult to get insurance to build back now. So it was a devastating blow to you know Biloxi's and Gulfport are the biggest cities, but uh, a lot of other smaller beach towns along Mississippi. And this also, uh, you know, obviously the flooding in New Orleans was uh, uh, very uh, infamous, but we didn't have too many cases there because it was just flooding, and they didn't get the high winds they got further east. Mm-hmm. The eastern suburbs in New Orleans had wind and floods. So they had the same issue with uh, coverage denied due to flooding, but they had the wind came first, and we we worked with whole uh, county governments that lost fifty buildings, wow. uh, you know, park buildings and township or county buildings, uh, also school districts mm-hmm. that may have had dozens of, of you know elementary schools, high schools all flooded out uh, in the eastern parishes uh, just east of New Orleans, and so we work with all them same issue. What time did the wind arrive and? And it was very tricky in the eastern suburbs of New Orleans because it wasn't the natural arrival of the storm surge. In those places, it was the breaking of the levees. Mm -hmm. And so we had to use the uh, Corps of Engineers' reports and figure out the timing of when the levee water came into those communities just east of New Orleans, and then uh, again reconstruct when the wind arrived and when the flooding from the levee breaks arrived. It was a different situation there in some respects, but still... The wind came before the water. Right. So still, those property owners were entitled to insurance coverage right. for, for their buildings.
2: And I think uh, it's a good point that you make because you're like, well, it's not like you're against the insurance companies. At that point, I remember um, talking to Dr. Joe Solbo, and he said the important thing for a forensic meteorologist is that the facts take you where the facts take you. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I would imagine there were some cases where you're like, oh, well, it's the f- Facts here or on this one, or that it was flooding. And yes, I mean we've right. worked
3: on cases in our AccuWeather forensic department on insurance fraud, where mm-hmm. we're helping the insurance companies, uh, right. uh, You know, uh, win trials uh, uh, against someone who's, uh, you know, fr- uh, doing fraud against them. But in this particular case, I mean, it's amazing how the word spreads when when people who are desperate, like you said earlier, suddenly hear that there may be someone to help them. Uh, against, you know, the ins- in their battle with the insurance company. And what happened was, uh, you know, our forensic work, um, we do uh, these cases uh, once they get involved in the legal system, which they didn't right away. It was just individuals. Right, just uh, filing in the their claims. but the beginning, but uh, one to two years after the storm, all the lawyers got involved, uh, people, you know, f- actually filing suit against the insurance companies. And so some of those cases went to trial. Mm-hmm. Not very many. But what would I I think, in a sense, the insurance companies were having a few test cases. I mean, there were tens of thousands of cases overall, of which we worked on maybe 250. But, um, A few went to trial, and I testified three or four times in court down on the Gulf Coast, each time explaining what I've explained to you a little bit today of the timing. You know, I showed uh, images of the Doppler radar, I explained our models. So in court, I would present all this scientific information to help the jury understand. In each and every case, the jury said, yes, the property owner deserves to get some payment from the insurance company. So essentially, insurance companies were losing those cases, and that just encouraged more and more settlements mm-hmm. uh so they didn't want to oh because they didn't want to keep fighting going they didn't to court want to it's fight. going to
2: cost them more going to court trying to right they
3: don't want to fight 10,000 people right. 10,000 separate right. cases so they finally you know they just realized it made sense to settle
2: when you visited um down there the first time what what was that like for you even just emotionally just walking through that area
3: it was very emotional it was astounding uh first of all setting up the trip the entirety of uh, the coastal area of Mississippi, there were no hotels to stay in. They were all wrecked. Mm, so right. there was. I had to stay around Mobile, Alabama, and then drive into Mississippi to meet the people I was going to meet. The second trip down, uh, I was uh, more interested in the area closer to Louisiana. I was able to get a room at a hotel that just opened in Slidell, Louisiana, which is just not too far from Mississippi. And it was amazing because the wall didn't quite meet the floor. There was a gap. But the room was available. Oh, and well. it, it didn't cost too <laughs> yes. much. And there was a place I could sleep. Because right. still in Mississippi, five months after the storm, along that coastal corridor, along Interstate 10 down there and closer to the coast, there were zero hotels that were open. Finally, eight months after the storm, I was able to get a room in Mississippi, mm-hmm. closer to where I needed to be. But uh, And then back to your question after I left the hotel and went to meet the people and they took me to their properties, I had never personally been in such a massive, destructed area. Like I said, there would be blocks and blocks and blocks of neighborhoods with just a few gnarled trees remaining and concrete slabs where wow. a building had been. They have a remarkable tree down there. I didn't know this till I started working down there called the live oak. And they've evolved for you know, thousands or millions of years to withstand hurricanes. And the root structure of the live oak is as big underground as the branches are above ground. So oh, they—they wow, almost—it's cool. almost physically impossible to blow one over because you can break them off parts of them. So the live oaks were still standing with a lot of broken branches. Right. And uh, that was all there was. Wow. Live oak trees, uh, sort of the skeletons with oh. a lot of broken branches. No buildings uh, near the near the beach. And that was all kinds of, you know, hotels, casinos, um, gas stations, and all these hotel, all these uh, personal beach homes, which obviously are valuable. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was one house in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, that we got involved with. It was a Frank Lloyd Wright design house built in the 1890s. uh, My understanding is it's the only property that Frank Lloyd Wright designed with his teacher, Louis Sullivan, uh, both of them at Chicago. uh, And I believe uh, Louis Sullivan is famous for some of the early skyscrapers in the United States. So anyway, they worked together on this amazing house and it had withstood all the hurricanes from the 1890s till you know 2005 wow. and a tornado went through the house and I could see the evidence of the track and so finally Katrina was too much for it the tornado took it out but the tornado took it out at 6:43 a.m. that morning when the cell went over and the water arrived at 9 a.m. the insurance company completely denied all payment that was the final Katrina trial. It went to trial eight years after the storm. Wow! It took that long to get there, and uh, we uh, complete victory for the property owner. I explained to the jury what I've already explained here today: the timeline, using all the science, the uh, radar images, computer printouts, and explained how the water came, the wind came first. The a tornado would have destroyed this house uh, two and a half hours before the very first storm surge just started to come in eventually the surge got there it went to at that location 15 or 16 feet high on the property site washed a lot away but it was wind at first and that was the final trial and that was it so we are now finished with all the Katrina work but it was a remarkable experience to meet the people to be able to help them to meet them personally on their property site um, and just see what happened and um I would I would say in my uh I've been in AccuWeather 42 years, and I've been doing forensics since 1995. And it really is what I'm, I feel best about in mm-hmm. our forensic work is helping all those people uh, in this situation.
2: I'm sure it probably feels like a calling for you uh, beyond a profession. So. It
3: does, and, um, you know, that's a whole nother conversation. But it's a very deep part of me that gets involved in this. I've loved the weather since I was tiny. I think mm-hmm. I was five when I first realized I loved the weather. And it, it's more than just a job. It's a vocation and an avocation, and it it affects me deeply. And so to be in a position to talk to the people who are really suffering and talk to them on the phone and be able to help them was just a wonderful part of the whole experience.
2: Okay. Thank you so much.
3: You're welcome. It was a lot of fun talking to you about it.
2: You too. Well, now we go from talking about floods with Katrina to talking about fire out west. And I'm joined on the phone by meteorologist Jeff Cornish. Hi, Jeff. How's it going? I'm good. It's good talking to you guys. You too. You too. So um, I just figured we would do a quick update on what's happening with the California wildfires, where things are at right now.
0: Well, we do have some good news in that the Ferguson Fire is now contained. That has been the big fire burning around Yosemite National Park. And uh, the uh, large fire there has been contained. Meanwhile, we still have about 100 large wildfires across the west. And among those 100 large fires, uh, they have burned about 2 million acres. Now, there are more acres burned beyond that, but that's the statistic for the current active fires. The one that has probably gone into the record books and that will go into the record books the most significantly uh, since we last talked has been the Mendocino complex fire that many of you know is really comprised of two fires very close to one another and they're being managed by the firefighting efforts and the the officials as one just because they're so close to one another the ranch fire and the river fire and the ranch fire alone is more than 330,000 acres that is at 76% containment and then the river fire now has been contained but it's been a nasty wildfire season especially in the states of Colorado and California.
2: Air quality has been really bad. I've been watching that because there's been, like, this big high pressure over the west, so it's like things aren't, you know, even fresh air. I think we got, like, two days last week uh, of some fresh air that came in the Pacific Northwest, but that's been another huge problem with this because of the stagnant
0: pattern. It's true. Yeah, there was a college soccer event in eastern Washington that was postponed because of the, uh, the air quality issues this past weekend. And in general, areas like Seattle and Portland that don't often deal with these issues. They've had some very poor air quality, air quality alerts and so forth. And a lot of folks have been talking in the east about how wet it has been, you know, persistently wet weather near the AccuWeather headquarters. You know, our wet problems in the east do kind of go hand in hand with the fires in the west as we've had this persistent trough across uh, the Ohio Valley. And east of there we've had storms, and we just can't seem to shake this western ridge Which is often found in the West this time of the year, but it's just been a little bulkier and a little bit more immovable compared to normal, and that's been setting the table for a a nasty wildfire season that has gotten off to a pretty bad start, and here we are in the middle of it, and it still continues on.
2: Yeah, and, you know, Jeff, I always say for people so that they understand what we're talking about with the trough and the ridge, I'm like, it's like a seesaw. So where it's up in the Pacific Northwest, where it's hot and, you know, just stays dry, uh, the other side of the country is where the downside of the seesaw is. So I'm like, you know, it always kind of goes that way. But uh, what are some of the differences
0: that we... We've seen and
2: what do you think are some of the components that kind of make that up?
0: Well this has been a bad one. Uh, we're really on, on the back end of back-to-back years of the horrible in some spots uh, wildfire seasons. In uh, 2017 uh, we had kind of a, a bad end to the wildfire season. Things really got going uh, around the midpoint and it was a, a nasty October and into November we still had some major fires in California which really was late season but uh, they were bad. The Thomas fire was a, a huge one. Uh, this year, we are behind the pace of last year, uh, which is good. We don't want to keep uh, pace with that, at least uh, when it comes to what we expect for the overall statistics at the end of the fire season. Uh, but uh, this year has been especially bad partly just because that ridge has not moved and we've had persistently dry weather across the west, um, and it's been especially bad in in Colorado, for example, we hit the average acreage burned right around the midway point in the fire season, and we've continued past that. Uh, There have been 450 homes just in Colorado that have been damaged or destroyed and more than 1,500 wildfires there. Uh, And California has been really, really bad with five of the 20 largest in in Colorado history, I should say, uh, just this year. But beyond right. Colorado, California has been really bad with about three times as many in California through August 12th compared to last year.
2: And I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are, because we had some pretty wet winters, right? So how do you think that's been a contributing factor in this?
0: I think the winter of 2016 to 2017 has been a big influence. That was the the winter, and it's, it's almost two winters ago when we look back, that, um, uh, really put a huge dent into the long-term drought in southern and central California. And we had the spectacular amount of rain that, that really uh, was a big help to water supply concerns and so forth. And that brought a whole lot of vegetation back to life uh, and uh, the forests became more robust and all that. Uh, so that set the, trouble, set the table for trouble last year, which was the following fire season after that wet year. But still, there's certainly some carryover that would continue after uh, the woods and the wilderness got a shot in the arm with extra vegetation and so forth. Uh, That certainly carries into into this year. Now, this past wet season in California was was a little frustrating for those looking for rain as it was a little dry in Southern California, but we had a normal and slightly above normal amount of precipitation over the most recent wet season in areas like Montana, Wyoming, washington and oregon did all right and then once we got south of sacramento it was really really dry this past year
2: what have you heard um their thoughts being about urban development like in some of these vulnerable areas too because kind of mandates they got to be more aggressive doesn't it or
0: it's certainly a much much greater risk now because people are are building and living uh, and also vacationing in areas that used to be pretty desolate in the past and as the cities of the west have grown and expanded you know, some of the most beautiful homes that you see in the most desirable neighborhoods are kind of on the edge of the wilderness where you have the great views and so forth. But those are in really dangerous, precarious spots to build because you're right at the interface between the wilderness where the fires can spread through the mountainsides and so forth pretty rapidly. Uh, and you don't have that protection. And we saw that uh, with the car Fire when the fire moved into the west side of the city of Reading. It was the western fringe there right at that urban-rural interface where the, the homes were most, uh, most at risk. Another thing that that some in the fire world uh, talk about is some of the – there's a trend, and the trend right now is fewer fires over the past half of a century, fewer fires per year, but the fires that we have burn more acres. Some of the theories are that you know, the point of emphasis is not necessarily containing the fire in wilderness where no one lives. They're putting more resources uh, into specific areas where there are homes and villages and communities to protect. So the overall number of acres burned may actually be increasing. You know, the firefighting efforts are number one safer and they're not as inclined to risk the lives of firefighters unnecessarily in, you know, deep ravines or sharp mountains in the backwoods where no one lives. It's more They'll strategic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So safer firefighting efforts. Uh, it's still a dangerous game obviously, but also, you know, they're trying to be wiser with resources and protecting homes. But allowing a fire to burn maybe an extra 30,000 acres if it's in a really, really, really rural area and there's an easy fire stop um, along a river, and that might be an extreme case where they would allow it to go tens of thousands of acres more. But there's a lot of real estate in the West that is undeveloped, and sometimes it's okay to let the natural course of events take its place in some of those areas. It's not a terrible thing for the forest, even though emotionally – uh, it it seems bad because fire seems like a devastating right. thing. Right, you feel like
2: we need to stop that, but like right, you said, right. it, you can a either. Lot of this has been
0: going on long before we were around. Right, but you know we do have issues like the uh, the holy fire that was started by uh, an alleged arsonist, and that was in a really dangerous spot, sandwiched between I-15 and the los angeles metro area right uh so you know there are certainly major human influences to a lot of this stuff as well
2: well thanks for taking some time to talk to us jeff
0: anytime i hope this is somewhat helpful
2: Well, we want to say a big thanks to our guests that joined us this week, uh, meteorologist Steve Wistar and meteorologist Jeff Cornish. And uh, we also want to tell you to be sure to subscribe.
1: That's right. You can find the AccuWeather podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, don't forget to leave us a review. And if you got a friend that likes weather and storytelling as much as we do here, let them know about the AccuWeather podcast.
2: I want to let you know that next week Mm -hmm. we are taking a look back at Hurricane Harvey one year later we've sent down a whole slew of people we have our extreme meteorologist reed timmers down there we also have meteorologist Brittany boyer and jonathan petromala who's uh, doing the stories related to harvey so we'll be talking about that and we'll also be talking about some hurricane preparedness so tune in for that one
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to the AccuWeather podcast, giving you the stories behind the weather, discussions on trending weather topics, and so much more. New episodes every Thursday. Just search for AccuWeather on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?